I wonder if any of you thought I was bailing just now. <laughs> That's it. For those of you who know me well, you would know that I'm not a big fan of gospel tracts. I know some of you are. I'm not. A gospel tract is a, is a little booklet, and it's a little booklet that aims to concisely communicate the, the gospel, to communicate the good news of who Jesus Christ is and, and what he's done. A lot of them take the gospel lightly, and a lot of them use the gospel I think inappropriately. It was, uh, it was popular when I was younger, like way back in the 20th century. <laughs> when I was younger, I remember that it was popular for Christians to go to church on Sunday, and then they would go out for lunch after service. They'd run up a big bill. And then they would, um, as a tip, they'd fold up a $100 bill and put it in the check folder just sticking out, only it wasn't a $100 bill. It was a gospel tract. So the idea was what I'm giving you is really more valuable than uh, a financial tip. I'm telling you how to, and it had this question like, you know, the $100 question. If you were to die today, where would you go? And so a lot of times these gospel tracts, and in my experience, they, they're used inappropriately. Or worse, they don't actually tell a, a biblical gospel. But I really like this one. I really like this gospel tract. I also like its kid-minded version, which is called Who Will Be King. Uh, this is put out by Matthias Media. And what this gospel tract does is it, it lays out accurately the biblical gospel. It lays out the good news of who Jesus Christ is. And then, in light of that gospel, it says, and this is the title of the tract, there are two ways to live. Now, the message of this gospel tract is not much different than the overall message of Paul in this letter that we've been studying that he wrote to the Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 were primarily theological. They were about doctrine. And then chapters 4 through 6 are primarily practical. They are about duty. Chapters 1 through 3, they described the gospel. How you and I as Christians have been saved from our sin and united to Christ and then united to one another. And then chapters 4 through 6 is instruction for us on how then we should live in light of that gospel. And here is the point that Paul makes crystal clear in the text that we're studying today. There are 
two ways to live. And if you boil it down, there are only two ways to live. There is the way of the world, and there is the way of Christ. There is the way that follows the ways of the world, and there is a way to live your life that follows the way of Christ. There is the world's way, and there is God's way. You can follow God's ways and live for His glory, or you can follow your own ways and live for your own glory. This is what Paul has to teach us today. Let's get into Paul's words, but first let's bow our heads, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your promise to, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand your word, to understand your truth. And so we ask for that help now. Help me to preach well. Help us all to hear well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 919. For those of you who are taking notes, here is today's three-heading outline. In verses 17 through 19, we have the way of the world. In verses 20 through 24, we have the way of Christ. And in verses 25 through 32, we have five relational exhortations. So let's begin. Here is the way of the world. Paul gets to it in verse 17. You'll see it begins with the word now, which means that Paul is moving on. Now this. He's moving on from his teaching on unity and diversity and maturity within the church in verses 1 through 16. And he moves on in these verses 17 through 19 to describe the way of the world. And it is the way that most of us Christians used to live. Not all of us. Some of you were blessed enough to grow up in Christians' homes. You've loved Jesus as long as you can remember. But many of us remember what it was like to live the way of the world. And he is warning us here as Christians today to not fall back into that way of life. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Remember that when Paul uses the word walk, he uses it seven times in this letter. He's talking about the way we live. 
Life is a journey, and the way we walk is the way we live. We think, and then we act. There is what we believe, and there is how we behave. Our theology and our ideology, and then the choices we make. And all of that together is the way we live. It is the way we walk. And here is Paul's warning. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, Paul actually says, you, right? He doesn't say, we. I'm saying, we. I'm applying this to all of us because I think this is a text that we can read this way. You shouldn't flippantly do that when you read the Bible. Definitely not. And insert we when Paul might be speaking and saying something to a particular group of people that maybe he's not saying to you. But we know about Ephesians that Paul was not only writing to them. In fact, that's why the Ephesians are never mentioned specifically in this letter. It was meant to be a letter that would be circulated amongst all local churches. He was writing this to all Christians who would receive this letter, which includes us. We also are Christians who are receiving this letter. So we also must no longer live like the Gentiles. Gentiles was shorthand for people who were far off from God. People who did not know him, love him, or live for him, which is how the Ephesians used to live before they knew God. But that is the way of the world, and they should no longer live that way. Paul describes the way the world thinks first. He describes the way the world thinks by using three phrases. You see them, futility of their minds, and then in verse 18, darkened in their understanding and ignorance that is in them. What is he saying? They do not know the truth. They know something, but it's not the truth. They only know what truthless teachers have taught them. G.K. Chesterton said, The first effects of not believing in God is that you lose your common sense and can't see things as they are. I think that's true. Through God and God alone, the one who created everything, including us, through God alone, we come to know the truth about ourselves. We come to know the truth about God. We come to know the truth about the world we live in. And that truth only comes from the author of all of it, who is God. So if we don't know God, we truly don't know anything. 
And because they do not know the truth, they are, he says, alienated from the life of God, which is ultimately due, Paul says in verse 18, to what? Their hardness of heart. That means that from a human perspective, the world does not know the truth of God because the world does not want to know the truth of God. Our hearts by nature are hardened to the truths of God. Our hearts by nature are hardened to God. We are disinterested in the things of God by nature. That's the way the world thinks. And therefore they live the way Paul describes in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is how the world thinks, and then this is how the world acts. It is the way of the world, and Paul warns against it because Christians evidently can fall back into it. Have you? Are you a professing Christian who has fallen back into living in the way of the world? Have you stopped meditating on God's word, which means reading it and thinking about it? Have you started taking in the world's philosophy? Have you lost the biblical perspective you once had? Have you noticed yourself falling into more sin? Less convicted than you used to be? Is your heart hardened to the things of God? Or is your mind clouded from the things of God? What will you do about it? Now, the alternative way to live is the way of Christ. There are two ways to live. That's the way of the world in verses 17 through 19. The way of Christ, Paul sets forward in verses 20 through 24. Beginning in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. See the contrast? But that is not the way you learned Christ. We were ignorant at one time. We were darkened in our understanding. But now we have learned Christ. Now as Christians we think differently. Not only have we learned Christ, verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I would say take out that word about. And the only reason I would say take out that word about is because it's it's not, you could look this up for yourselves, it's actually not in the original text. And I tried to figure out why the ESV added the word about, 
If you've got a King James Version or a New King James Version or a New American Standard Version, it doesn't have that word about. And I would say take it out because if you do, and you read it that way, you get the significance, the true significance of what Paul is saying. Here it is. You have learned Christ, that's verse 20, so Christ is the subject. You have heard him, which means he is also the teacher. And you were taught in him, which means he's also the classroom. That's a big point that Paul is making. Christians, by the Spirit of God, you have been totally and completely immersed into Christ that you may fully know him. And so no wonder we think differently from the world. Our minds, verse 23 will tell us, have been renewed. Our beliefs, our philosophy, our ideology, Christians is shaped by the word of God and only the word of God. And so we take what people say and we take what teachers teach and we sift it through the Bible. And if it is compatible then we are free to accept it. And if it is not compatible, then we reject it. But we sift everything we hear, what we like and what we don't like, because what we like may not be true and what we don't like may be true. So we sift all of it, whatever it is you listen to all day. The books you read, the teachers you sit in their classrooms, the podcasts that are going in your head. If it's compatible with the Word of God, we accept it. And if it's not, then we reject it. That is the way we as Christians think. And now because we think differently, we live differently. We're called, verse 22 to put off your old self, which is just another way of saying no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's just using a, a clothing metaphor now. You, you used to wear this. You used to dress like this. But now you've got to take that off. You can't wear that anymore. It, verse 22, belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. Instead, put on the way of Christ. Verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here's what Paul is saying. As Christians, our hearts have been softened and our minds have been renewed 
so that we think and then live differently. And that is the way of Christ. Now, Paul's not done. Far from it. As this letter goes on, he's going to get more and more specific with application. He's going to get more and more practical. Right down to the way the way of Christ looks in each of your differing and unique relationships. He's going to describe down in very practical detail what the way of Christ looks like in all your different relationships. But before now, he gets that specific in verses 25 through 32, he takes a step closer and he starts meddling in our personal life. There are things that many people naturally don't resist in God's word and then there are things that people are more likely to resist in God's word And one of them is when, as Paul does here, it gets very up and in our business, which is exactly what he does here by giving relational exhortations. He's talking to this local church. He's talking to our local church. And here we are. We have relationships with each other and your family at home and amongst your family here at church. And he's going to exhort us here. Here's what the... That new self that you must put on, here's what this new self looks like in all of your relationships. If you're going to walk the way of Christ, then these commitments must be common to every relationship that you have. And there's five of them. The first one, is put away falsehood and speak truth. And he gives it in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul already admonished the Ephesians to speak the truth in love in verse 15. So he's assuming they've already decided to put away falsehood. He says it again here. Speak the truth with your neighbor. And then he does what he's going to do with several of these exhortations. And it's very helpful. He gives motivation. He doesn't have to do that, but he gives motivation in the form of a reason. And here is his reason why we should speak the truth to one another. We are members of one another. Think about this. The motivation 
for speaking truthfully is that we are, as Christians in a local church, we are profoundly connected. Whether you feel that way or not is irrelevant. We are profoundly connected. You see what he's saying. It is one thing to be dishonest with the salesman on the other end of the phone. It is another to be dishonest with your Christian brother or sister. We are members of one another, and so we must be committed to speaking truth to one another. Number two, it's found in verses 26 and 27, and it is be angry and do not sin. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry. Paul expects Christians to be angry at times. Sometimes, Christian, you need to be angry. Some of you need to be more angry. And some of you, somewhere along the line, were taught that anger is always a bad thing. That is not what Paul says. It's not what the rest of Scripture says. According to John Stott, there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses God's anger, it should arouse our anger too. Paul is saying, do not sin in your anger. Be angry and, at the same time, do not sin. To make this more practical, there are two questions that you could ask yourself whenever you are angry. And those two questions are, why am I angry and how am I angry? Are you angry over something that God would be angry about? Or, like me, when I'm typically angry, are you angry because you've been personally offended? One is right, one is wrong. One is righteous, one is sinful. And as you express your anger, I'm sure some of you know what it's like to express your anger. As you express your anger, are you under control? 
Maybe it would be good to ask someone else that question. I'm in total control. Are you in control of your anger? What are the effects of your anger? Sinful anger creates more problems. Leads to more sin. Another good question that Paul addresses here, how long does your anger last? Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, do not stay angry. Keep short accounts. Take out the trash. And then the reason he gives in verse 27 is that if you hold on to anger, you are giving opportunity to the devil. So if you and I are sinfully angry, then we are giving the devil an opportunity to drive a wedge between us and others. Therefore, we must be committed to being angry over the right things and then angry in the right way. Third, the third exhortation that Paul has here is to work hard for what you need. Work hard for what you need, and it's in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The way of Christ is to work hard for what you need. The way of the world is to look for shortcuts. The way of the world is to take what isn't yours. There are so many ways to dishonestly get what you need. You could cheat other people. You could take advantage of others. You could unnecessarily rely on the government. You could borrow without paying back. And while there are many reasons given in the Bible of why it is good to work hard, it honors God, it's an example to others, it is good for your own body and soul, it provides potentially for your family. But notice the reason that Paul gives why it is imperative that we work hard for what we need. He says, labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here is one thing that we tell our boys in the Myers home. Work hard. Make as much money as you faithfully can so that you can give it away to others. Isn't that what Paul is saying? That is a radical perspective on the things of this world. We must work hard for what we need so that 
we can give to others. It is the way of Christ. Number four, use your mouths for good. He keeps getting in closer and closer. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. None of it. Let let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The, The New Testament in particular has a lot to say about our tongue and a lot to say about our mouth and and a lot to say about our words, but there is maybe not a stronger, more comprehensive statement than what Paul says here. First, he says it negatively. You know, don't do this, do this with your mouth. Don't let any words come out of your mouth that are going to tear people down. If it's going to corrupt you got to be committed as a Christian. Do not let those words come out of your mouth. And then he puts it positively. Only let the words come out of your mouth that will build others up. So all that should be coming out of our mouths as Christians to other people are words that in some way are going to be for their good. That are going to build them up. Now to clarify... Because this goes on a lot in churches. This does not mean flattery. Because Paul's already covered that. Hasn't he? Because flattery is dishonesty. Flattery is where you just say nice things to people that you may not even mean. The goal of flattery is to tell people what you think they might want to hear. The goal of flattery is that people would feel better about themselves. That is not what Paul means when he exhorts us to build people up with our words. We've got to be honest. He helps us more when he says, as fits the occasion. As fits the occasion. In other words, consider the occasion. Who are you talking to? What's going on? What are the circumstances that you are speaking into what is happening in this person's life and then think and say something that they need to hear that will be for their spiritual good and a lot of times what will happen is that you can't think of something to say and then the old adage will hopefully come to mind If you can't think of something that is nice to say, if you can't think of something that is for their spiritual good to say, then don't say anything at all. You don't have to say something. You want to. You're thinking. You're being slow to speak. You want to build them up. You can't just flatter them. 
You can't be dishonest. You can't just make something up. In verse 29, we learn that when we do this, we can be God's means of grace, which is powerful. When we speak in such a way that others are built up, then verse 29, we give grace. We give grace to those who hear. I believe verse 30 goes with verse 29. It's one more thing to see. Paul gives a very unique, in this case, and effective motivation. Maybe because this is particularly hard for us, this misuse of our tongue toward people in our family. He says, grieves the Holy Spirit. The the misuse of our tongue grieves the Holy Spirit, the very one who has sealed us for the day of redemption. I think the motivation is this. In the moment, maybe you don't care about grieving your Christian brother or sister. Do you care about grieving God? Maybe you don't care about grieving this person that you want to lay into right now. Do you care about words coming out of your mouth that are tearing down, that are corrupting, actually grieving the Spirit of God? As Christians, that is high motivation. If we do care about that, then we ought to commit ourselves to using our mouths for only good. And finally, his fifth uh, relational exhortation, be kind. Be kind. In verses 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He begins again with a negative. We should put off worldly attitudes like bitterness, wrath, anger, which lead to clamor, slander, and malice. And instead, we've got to be kind. And he goes on to describe that kindness in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, which is, of course, the opposite of the hard heart we used to have, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kindness is expressed through our forgiveness of others. Others will give us opportunities to forgive because they will sin against us. And you will give others the same opportunity by sinning against them. That's inevitable. And how do we forgive? He gives us motivation again. He gives us reason again. We should consider Christ's forgiveness of us. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The forgiveness we've received, it it motivates us to forgive others. 
it enables us to let go and to forgive others. It's a powerful thing for Christians to not have to wonder if Christ is going to forgive them. You know, there's always this sense or there's always this fear in our human relationships that forgiveness might not be on the other side of this offense. It's not so with Christ. We have absolute certainty. We don't have to wonder if Christ will forgive us. We know he will. And even when we have sinned, his disposition toward us is one of kindness. In fact, his kindness leads us to repentance. We sin against him, but he remains kind. His disposition toward us is warm, not cold. And so we are motivated to repent because we know he will forgive us. And Paul says we've got to be the same way with one another. We will be sinned against. And kindness and warmth welcomes confession and it promises Forgiveness, but unkindness and coldness, it pushes at best an admission and it just promises disappointment. So Paul says, be kind to one another, ready and willing to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. This is the way of Christ in all of our relationships. We must put away falsehood and speak truth. We must be angry, but not sin. We have to work hard for what we need and not take advantage of one another. We must use our mouths for good, and we must be kind, tender-hearted for giving one another. Now, in conclusion, there is a lot of do in these verses. I wonder if you feel that. Not every sermon is like that, because not every text in the Bible is like that, but there's a lot of do this in this text. There's a lot of don't do this in this text. There wasn't a lot of that in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Like hardly any. In three chapters, there was hardly any command imperative. There was hardly any do in chapters 1 through 3. But be ready because there's a ton of it in chapters 4 through 6. This is the call of the gospel. Remember back 
When Paul made that transition from doctrine to duty in verse 1 of this chapter, he said, here's what's coming. Live your life in a manner that is worthy of the calling you have received. That is the call of the gospel. Live your life in a way that it is of infinite value. And he's getting more and more practical with that. We are to live the way of Christ. And the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done the call of that gospel is that it demands that we live our lives for God and for his glory and not for ourselves. If you are here and you are not a believer, you're not a Christian. You've heard these things before, but you've never really believed them. You've heard that Jesus has come and lived and suffered and died in the place of sinners so that their sin could be paid for, so that they could stand righteous before God and be reconciled to him, but you have not believed it. The call of the gospel is that you believe this good news. That you believe this good news. That it stops being this good news for those people over there, and today it becomes the good news for you. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that I am so utterly sinful that there is nothing I could possibly do to be good enough to earn God's favor and be in relationship with Him. I believe that Jesus came and lived as a man on this earth and lived that perfect life that I'm supposed to live. I believe that Jesus, though he did not deserve it and was the only one ever who didn't deserve it, yet died on the cross because he died willingly to take the wrath and anger of God towards sin on my behalf. And so my sins are forgiven. That perfect life that Christ lived, the credit for that he gave to me. So that God sees me through his perfect son, Jesus. I am righteous in his sight. And I will live this life loving him for him. And then I will die and be reunited to him forever. If you don't believe that today, The call of the gospel is that you would turn from your sin and your own ways and believe this truth. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if most of you here today are believers. You're Christians. And we study a text like this and we read these exhortations from Paul And some of you feel guilty right now. Some of you know that you have sinned against God in these ways. You know that you've sinned against others. And you should repent. You should confess your sin. 
You should own your sin before God. If you've sinned against someone else, you should own your sin before them. You should ask God and others to forgive you. You're asking them to let it go. You're asking them to not hold it against you. And you should seriously commit yourself, likely again, to change. Others of you, many in my experience will hear a sermon like this and you will also feel guilty, but it won't be attached, that guilt won't be attached to any particular sin. You'll just feel like a failure. It seems many Christians are sort of walking around with this constant nagging, low-flying guilt. It could be your personality. It could be the way that you were brought up. It could be the kind of church that you were raised in. But it is so many Christians. You just can't ever do enough. Your guilt isn't attached to some particular sin, but you don't pray enough. I watch too much TV. I'm not patient enough. My quiet time's not long enough. Shouldn't have bought that new refrigerator. I don't exercise enough. I don't share the gospel with others enough. I don't spend enough time in prayer. It's never enough. But whichever one of those camps you find yourself in, you've heard the call of the gospel. Now you need to receive the comfort of the gospel. You need to receive the comfort of the gospel. You wonder why Paul had not a single instruction for three chapters. You know what he was doing in those three chapters? Doing his best to hammer down into your head and into your heart as deeply as he could that you are a child of God. That he loves you as much as he could possibly ever love you right now. That it is not contingent or dependent on the things you do or don't do. And it is all 100% hanging on what Christ did for you. When you and me think like that, we're trying to earn it. We're trying to deserve it. We're trying to feel worthy of it. And we have to go back to God's truth and we have to preach to ourselves. You know the difference. Most of us just listen to ourselves. You have to preach to yourself and get God's truth and say God's truth to myself. You have to 
read the words of the songs that you're singing on Sunday. Words like this, Could endless striving now make me righteous? Could all my works now grant me hope? I hope you know the answer is no! No! No, you're endless striving. You're trying to be better at this and better at that and not do this and not do that. It cannot make you righteous. It cannot grant you hope. It's never going to be enough. It never could be enough. Oh, hallelujah. The blood of Jesus. That is my only plea. That is my only boast. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is Christian Not a Christian, you don't get this, but Christian, there is now, right now, there is zero, there is no condemnation. There's no coldness. There's no holding back. There's no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. You have already been accepted. You have already been forgiven. And this is over the top. You have already been made righteous. And now, okay, I want to obey. I want to read your word. I want to glorify you. I want to be with you. I want to please you. But I don't have to so that you will love me. There's not a relationship like that in the universe. And so we need to be reprogrammed and have our minds renewed and it's got to be pounded into our heads over and over and over again. By the grace of God, we've been saved. So let's celebrate that this morning. We have been, and you know, those songs that we've been singing, these prayers we've been praying. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm celebrating right now in my own heart, thinking about these things with you. But now in communion, we're going to do something that is this expression of our gratitude for Christ, even our gratitude for one another, that he has brought us into his family and united us to him and to one another. We know that that is only by the blood of Christ. And so we remember it in this practical, visible, tangible way, the way Jesus told us to. If you're here and you're visiting with us, you are, you're welcome to take communion with us if this is something that is for Christians. If you are a Christian, if you have turned from your sin and you've placed your faith only in the work of Christ, you've committed yourself to him and to his people, you're a part of or feel like you're a part of this family here or you've come and are visiting from another family where you're committed 
where the same gospel that you've heard today is preached, that describes you, then you're welcome to take this meal with us. We'll have leaders up front to serve you, and we ask you to come forward and take that bread and that juice and return to your seat with it and wait, because we'll take it together as a church family. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we turn our attention now to the sacrifice of your son. God, our hearts are filled with gratitude because you have done what we could not do. Help us now to remember this grace, to remember what it is that you have done, to keep in mind that there is nothing that we could ever do to deserve it or to earn it. For those of us, God, who uh, struggle to accept this salvation and to find joy in it, help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.